Hi everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Yeo. And I'm Ben. Today we are discussing about Taiwan offshore wind with Maya Malik. Yes, Maya is the co-founder of Kima Energy. Before that, she has developed wind projects in Taiwan and Vietnam with Copenhagen Offshore Partners and Ostet. We will discuss about Taiwan offshore wind and especially about Round 3 tender, the impact of the disruption in the supply chain and development of CPPA offtake. On with the show. Hi Maya, welcome to the show. Could you talk about your experience developing offshore wind and how you came to create Kima Energy in January of this year? How's your experience so far? Yeah, sure. Well, I spent 20 years now in energy and 11 of those in offshore wind. Initially, I worked for Shell on petrochemical projects in Australia, then the Netherlands and Singapore. And then I did my MBA and decided to work for Dong Energy, which is now Austed out of the UK. So there I had a number of senior commercial, technical and operations management roles overseeing offshore wind assets in the UK, Germany and Denmark. And I was also part of the team that started to look at the strategy for entering the first new markets outside of Europe, which would be the US and Taiwan. Then in 2017, that was a big year for me. I left Austin and I went to work for Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and Copenhagen Offshore Partners. I moved to Taiwan and started working from very early stage development phase in new markets. In Taiwan, I was leading government bid applications and we were quite successful. We won 900 bids together with our partners and led the task force to secure our project rights, PPAs, and manage our project financing processes for our first project. Then I went on to work in other new markets in Asia and I saw huge potential. So that became my area of love and focus. So I led our market entry, established our team and managed the development of our pipeline there. This year I decided to establish my own company, Kima Energy, together with my business partner, Kimberly Cran. At Kima, we essentially provide development management and strategic advisory services to developers and investors. Our niche is in offshore wind and we focus on the APAC region. I also work as an advisor to a World Bank offshore wind development program on the side. So essentially we're there to help the developers and investors navigate the markets, pick good sites, design partnership structures and set up clear plans for market entry. And in some cases, we also help them to support their plans. Like in Taiwan, we advise on bidding of round three projects. So we've worked on all markets now in APAC, except for China. That's really good. Today, I'm quite excited to talk about Taiwan offshore wind market, which is beside China, one of the biggest uh, offshore wind markets in Asia. Could you give us an overview of the Taiwan wind resources and the role of offshore wind in the country energy mix? Yeah, sure. Taiwan has some high level targets. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and they're saying they need 60 to 70 percent renewables by 20. 50. At the moment, they're on about 10 gigawatts of renewables. Um, most of that is solar, around 10% on wind, mostly onshore, and some hydro as well. They're essentially reaching the point that Icarus is quite a dense population with a very mountainous landscape. There's just be some natural limitations on how far they can take onshore wind and solar. On the flip side, they have lots of coastline and access to some great wind resources along the Taiwan Straits. It has become just for them a really good natural solution that and can be the key thing that helps them to drive the transition and energy independence. 21 gigawatts by 2035 is what they're aiming towards. 
and six gigawatts of those already awarded, three gigawatts being tendered now, and then the rest is planned in the future. Yeah, definitely a promising market. Could you talk more about the main actor in this market? For example, who are the main developers, OEMs, optics, and regulators? Sure. I'll start first with the developers. The developers that have been awarded project for a while and already doing stuff. You have uh, Thai Power, which is the state-owned grid operator. Then international players like Forster and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, who partnered with local state-owned company China Steel. Then Northland Power, WPD, now Skyborne Renewable in a partnership with Total. Then Korea Swanko, which used to be a local developer, but is now owned by Stone Peak. As well as Jira, one, one Japanese company there. Then you have a number who are developing projects, but haven't yet been awarded a project. Then a number of local players in partnerships with internationals. Then when it comes to OEMs, you have uh, the two uh, big ones are here. So Siemens can sell investors and perhaps with Siemens sort of being here a bit longer and having a bigger share of the market, GE and that yet here. So it's just those two. When it comes to the off-takers, because the grid here is not liberalized, so you have mainly one grid off-taker type power. With latest regulations allowing for corporate PPAs, there's been a lot of interest to look for corporate off-takers. But so far, just sort of one company signing PPAs or commitments to enter PPAs with developers, and that's TSMC. That's interesting on the corporate PPA, and we'll come back to that. Before we jump in the third round of the wind tender, could you give us an overview of the previous two rounds in Taiwan and tell us a bit more about specific projects that have already achieved COD and some of them are about to achieve COD? Yeah, it's full Round one, which is demo and small scale projects, less than 300 megawatts, and was mainly awarded to local developers via a selection process. And that got some projects off the ground and they were good, but they then find a lot of holes in the framework. They were all delayed and some didn't happen at all. And this government designing the next process, which was very much focused on attracting more international experienced developers to Taiwan. So that's round two, where they awarded about five and a half gigawatts. And in this round, there were two competitions. So first a selection competition followed by an auction. So the selection process awarded a feed-in tariff and was held in two stages. The first stage, which is about one gigawatt, prioritized the maturity of the project. So you wouldn't have to implement any local content, but you were only eligible to enter if you could meet a very tight deadline. And that's just to get the industry going. Then you had a second stage, which would be about the next three gigawatts, prioritized local content. There was a staged implementation you know, across a number of years with more and more local content added the later you were connected to grid. That was followed by a, a price auction process for another one and a half gigawatts where there was no local content requirement and you just had to bid on price, so prioritizing cost. To pre-qualify, you had to get an approved EIA and grid connection. And the first person to get their EIA would get exclusivity to bids for that site. On top of that, there was a cap for developers to make sure that there was a spread of winners. If you got capped out of the first competition, the selection competition, you could still enter the auction competition. And actually everyone who entered the auction competition came out of the part of people who were either capped out or didn't win 
in the selection process. Then if you want, you find an admin contract and that awarded you your grid connection and a guaranteed tariff in a 20-year PPA. And I should mention this process was quite complex, yet ran in quite a smooth way, but at the price auction point, feed-in tariff was set high and attractive to draw everyone in. But then when developers put in their own prices, it dropped by more than half of the feed-in tariff the government had set. And there were a lot of good reasons for this. So, you know, in the price competition, there was no content requirement. And also the winners had already won something in the selection process. So they could kind of use the margins from getting the higher feed-in tariff to compensate for the lower price they did in the auctions, but it just didn't look good for government. And then it made tariffs for offshore wind projects a political issue as well. There's backdrop when you start looking at the round three dynamic. That's interesting. We see in the episode five, Lee Min Chiao from the Global Wind Energy Council, who explained how to launch an industry uh, in the country. So first you start with the feed-in tariffs to a lower price discovery, and then you switch to a tender. Overall, her conclusion on Taiwan was that the country was very successful. Five gigawatt awarded in round two is quite impressive and hopefully for round three we will be uh, successful. Now, I just want to focus on round three. So round three will be tendered by phases and the tenders for the first phase has already been, been submitted. However, some features of the current tender is a bit challenging for the developers. I'm thinking first about the local content requirement, which you mentioned already. Second, the price cap for uh, the project limited to only 500 megawatts. And third, the overall inflationary pressures. And all of that puts a lot of constraint on the developers. We've seen the CEO of Ofsted published uh, on LinkedIn that Ofsted is not going to participate to this uh, round three tender because of these challenges. So it would be interesting if you could provide some details on what all these challenges and what type of strategy developers are implemented to overcome them? Yes, sure. In context of previous competitions, I feel like some quite high bars were put around this auction. They basically took all the local content that was included in the maximum requirements of the previous selection process and increased those and made that a kind of requirement. So you had to meet them. There was some flexibility around it, but essentially you would have to deliver at least what was set from the previous auction and more as a minimum. That's a starting point. Then you had the price submitted from the previous auction also being implemented as the cap for this next round three competition. On top of that, although it was a couple of years after the previous competition, there's been no real time for the supply chain to mature, gain efficiencies, and really be confident in also lowering their costs to pass those on. You're still paying the price for forced early local content. So essentially the price cap that was set is not deliverable. You cannot build it with those other requirements for that price. Bearing in mind also, because there is a limit on capacity, you are limited in what you could do in terms of scale as well, which is another thing developers normally can play with to reduce their price per megawatt hour. It then becomes more about, okay, if I can't deliver at the bid price, even if I bid at the cap, my only option becomes to get a corporate PPA. So this competition weirdly turns into a competition about how much risk you're willing to take on your corporate PTA. 
you will build if you are very confident or willing to take that risk or maybe make some assumptions like a wholesale market might be implemented by a certain time. That's how you basically deal with the rules of this bid. The other thing you can do is also put in a bid and say, I know it's not deliverable and I know it's not just me that can't deliver it. Everyone's in the same boat. If everyone can't deliver it, then there will be a point where someone has to make a U-turn and at least I'm there at the table when that U-turn happens. But that's pretty risky move to make for especially a big international company. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, recently, we received Chris Starling from the Lento Group and he uh, presented the conclusion of the renewable energy tenders in the Philippines. And it seems to me that the dynamics in the Philippines might be quite similar to the dynamics in round three. So, for example, in the Philippines, there were like the cost pressure uh, price cap, which was set at a low level, which means that at the end of the day, there were less competition and only local developers were submitting bids. The trend of decreasing levelized costs of electricity seems to have reversed recently, with over the past year, renewable energy becoming a bit more expensive due to supply chain issues. And it's really on this question I want to focus now with you. So with current disruption and price of commodities increasing, how have these factors impacted the supply chain and how developers are adapting to the price increase? I guess to add definitely another dimension into this, one is rising commodity prices and another is inflation. The thing about the Taiwanese PPAs is they're not indexed either, so you're taking this risk. And it's also the case for some contracts. As you see these trends, the first thing is a big dive into your contracts, which hopefully you have signed, but then to see how much are you protected against commodity prices is that fixed or are you exposed to it and so on as a developer you'll be looking at that and the first thing you're going to get to the bottom to is is it your problem or the supplier's problem the fact that commodity prices are going up you can only do that to a certain point because if your supplier is not around then that also doesn't help you on top of that you maybe have hedged some elements or maybe your supplier has in their own supply chain so you could have some products there but essentially it becomes you can only take so much you start drawing on your contingencies which will be for new markets tend to be higher than more mature established markets so you should have a bit more room then once you've done that to a certain point you basically start taking a hit on your return rate and you can only do that for so long, then you can be in the unfortunate position where you're basically going back to your off-taker, right? To say, I can't do this anymore under the terms of the existing PPA. The best protection, I guess, if you're a developer is basically to have contracts and products that protect you. Understood. And you mentioned about the PPA, I think it's a good transition just to speak about the off-take. Uh, I think on the off-take side, there are a couple of interesting questions regarding Taiwan offshore wind. The first being on, as you mentioned, previously the only option available was a Thai power off-take, a government-owned utility off-take. But now there is the CPPA in this round, and you mentioned that uh, TSMC was involved. And could you talk about how the developer are looking at the two options and how they are strategizing around these different type of take? Yeah, so 
I think a type hour PPA would always be preferred and it's been proven to be bankable and what's standing behind that is also the government of Taiwan. So there's kind of comfort in that revenue stream. There's no carbon market yet. Next option for corporate PPAs is to go for someone who is a big power consumer, has steady power consumption and needs renewable energy for another reason. And that main reason currently is around suppliers who need to meet their RE100 requirements. So developer start looking at who needs renewable energy and is willing to pay more than Thai power. And they start looking for people who use a lot of power and who use it in a very predictable way. Actually, most of the time, you can't find such unicorn companies that can support a large offshore wind farm on their own. But Taiwan has GSMC and it's really unique. It's a huge power consumer. Like I think it consumes the same amount of power as Greater Taipei. And then it operates 24 hours, 365 days a year. If they really wanted all renewable energy, they could probably prop up the whole offshore wind industry. So it's a really unique company and also because of their global position, credit ratings, et cetera. It's like a, a situation that if they were so off-taker, you, you could probably be confident that it's a bankable arrangement as well. Although that's not proven yet. <laughs> that's where basic things are now. Then I think you can go to outside the SMC, the next tier of consumers will maybe start pulling together lots of smaller scale consumers and haven't seen that implemented yet. I think it gets quite complicated then to do that. Maybe in the future there'll be some kind of platform or product that combines a number of users that also wind farms can enter direct agreements with. I think that would be pretty cool, like that evolution. You're right. The CPPA is definitely a trend in renewable offtake, and it's going to develop further. I think there's a strong growth area for Taiwan offshore wind as well. Another issue I wanted to discuss was on the technology in itself. So mostly, if we summarize, most of the offshore wind for now has been developed with fixed bottom, like a construction anchor to the seabed. Mm -hmm. uh, but in round three, we have actually some allocation with above 60 meter deep. And then it's come in the question of floating bottom solutions. And some of the floating bottom project has been done in Europe, in the UK. Basically, part of the tender suite will require this technology. So how do you see that playing out in the tender? And uh, how mature do you think the floating bottom technology is? Okay, let's start with the maturity and sort of the context of where floating is. So the technology is definitely proven. Although there's still a lot of designs out there and continuous work ongoing to reply, which designs work best in what conditions and can be scaled up. My gauge is there's a lot more talk and comments that is a bit ahead of the reality. So there's still a journey to go there for sure to commercialize floating. If you look at where we are now, the amount of floating that's been installed and current sizes, so you have Tampon, which is just under 90 megawatt in Europe. That is about the same size as Barrow Wind Farm, which is fixed bottom, built in 2006. 
the safe floating is at now is basically barrel in 2006. I would say we know what we're doing and we can commercialize this a lot faster, but still kind of a 10-year journey to commercialize. I have a bit of a worry because there is a lot of confident talk, a lot of competitive bidding and pipeline grabbing. And somehow I feel developers can send a signal to governments that it's more mature than it actually is. And then that will cause governments to a bit skip this fostering stage and go straight to these uber competitive bits to get the signal that industry is ready. You have a bid, you always get someone bidding. Then they won't be able to deliver and you can waste years in this cycle. That's my own personal worry about floating mm -hmm. and where we are. Then looking specifically at Taiwan, in the last wave of projects that were awarded in that initial six gigawatt, we were up to 50 meters water depth. And now you have what we call deep fixed bottom, which is just 60, 70 meters water depth. We'll get Taiwan through this auction round of three gigawatts and maybe even through the 2023 auction round of up to six gigawatts. But it might be as early as 2023 or 2024 for sure, where then anything left will be floating. The exception is there's still fixed bottom areas out there. It's just a lot of them have been carved out as no-go areas by government. So the exception is if they revisit that and reclassify these zones and make them developable for sure, then that could change things. That's interesting what you say. If the government is too aggressive on putting a competitive a process in, into that and that to confidence. Uh, there's for sure the reason that we will lost a couple of years if uh, the bidders cannot de really deliver. We cover a lot of issues during our conversation. If you were to advise a developer, what do you think are the top three issues when looking at developing offshore wind in Taiwan? Well, the first thing I would say is um, it's a high entry cost. The price for your ticket to get to a bid is high compared to other markets. In Taiwan, you have to spend a couple of years development. You're not getting any exclusive rights while you develop. So you're really spending sort of 10 million plus range just for one ticket to bid. So you've got to stomach that and be okay with that before you even start. The next thing is to understand this current gap in the route to market because conditions and the low price cap, you're basically relying on corporate PPA. Maybe you're hanging out and waiting for government to U-turn, but you just have to be okay that that's a condition that the market is at before you start. In Taiwan, the pros of it is development here moves very fast, especially when government supports or concludes on decisions needed quite fast compared to other markets in Asia. It's a good place to be. It's just also proven and demonstrated and, and established. The third one would be the local content trend. It's one of those pendulums that has to swing a few times before it finally lands somewhere that works and is sustainable. Great. So my, uh, you've been in the industry for such a long time and we're just very curious. If you had to pick one, what would be the best memory that you could share with us? Yeah, it's quite tough. After so many years in oil and gas, it was just so incredibly cool to be part of 
a huge industry at very early stage that would be really defining the energy scene of that country for many, many years. I was lucky enough to be able to do it in a few other countries as well and have the, the chance to make that impact a few times in my career. I feel that big motivator is this chance you have to be part of something so big and make a difference to your country. It was really cool. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on the show, Maya. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.